0: in prayer. And this prayer this morning is the theme, is the conquest of sin, and it is for to encourage us who are struggling uh, in sin. So let us go before the Lord and pray. Lord, your word tells us in Romans 6 and 14 that sin should not have dominion over us, for we are not under law but under grace. Lord, in our inmost hearts, we worship you this morning. For you are high above the heavens. And yet you humble yourself to behold the things that are in heaven and that are on earth. Lord, in your condescension, you regard to the very lowest of mankind. Many of us can sing, he has regarded my low estate. For, Lord, you raised the poor out of the dust and the needy out of the dunghill, that you may set them among princes, even the princes of the people. Who is a God like unto you? Our praises shall never cease from the rising of the sun until the going down of the same. And all through the night watches, the Lord's name is to be praised. Our Father, for that is the sweetest title by which we can address you, you save us entirely from sin. There are many in your presence who are resting in the peace which comes of justification by faith. We know that we are righteous through the righteousness of another, even the Lord Jesus Christ. But Lord, we often pine for a personal likeness to yourself. If you are our father, then upon every child of yours should the father's image be impressed. So let it be, Lord. We ask you, Lord, to enable us to recognize our death to sin. And when it tempts us, may we be deaf to the voice of the deceitful charmer with the deafness of death. And when it will use our members of our bodies as instruments of unrighteousness. May we be quite incapable with the incapacity of death. Father, I ask you this morning to deliver us from the invasion of sin as well as from the dominion of it. Grant us to walk as Christ walked in his newness of life. May we live. May the life in the flesh be a life of faith upon the son of God who loved us and gave himself for us and may it be a life of love and consecration of burning zeal for God a life of pure holiness such a life in incarnate God himself has lived among the sons of men Lord we lament that in the body of this death there is much that we hate we are tempted to sin at times And though busy in the world, we become spiritually idle. Also, Lord, we are tempted to envy others because they excel us. And we mourn to confess the meanness of our spirit in this matter. And also, we have to lament our pride. We have nothing to be proud of. The lowest place is ours. But, Lord, we ought to conceive ourselves to be something when we are nothing. We often have a higher estimation of ourselves than we ought Lord we ask you to forgive all the vices of our nature but at the same time kill them for we hate ourselves to think that we should fall into such evils especially have mercy upon us for our unbelief you've given us proof of your existence and of your love to us and of your care over us especially have you given us your own your only begotten son, the best pledge of love that we have. And yet, Lord, we acknowledge that we do doubt. Unbelief comes into the soul. We're quite ashamed of this. We could lie in the very dust to think it should be so. Lord, have mercy upon us. But also help us to be strong in faith in the future, giving glory to God. Lord, we must also sorrowfully lament our hearts, how we are prone to wonder at times. If you gave us a blessing, we begin to idolize it. How often do we set our hearts upon children, upon some beloved object, or upon wealth, or upon honor, or upon self-glory, or upon relationships and other people? Lord, we can be prone to committing spiritual adultery too often. But Lord, we bless you this morning that we can pray in this fashion. That we can come to you and plead for you to deliver us from this body of sin. When sin so plagues us. Lord, you know that sin is our greatest curse. We will soon suffer anything than sin, at least when we are in our right mind to feel so. So, Father, we ask you this morning to deliver us from sin. At the very thought of his coming near to us, we cry, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me? And we only find comfort in the blessed truth that you give us the victory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And, Lord, let that victory be very apparent. May it be very clear to our own consciousness, very much displayed in our lives. Lord, help us to live towards you in all devotion, confidence, obedience, and simple childlike faith. Help us, Lord, to love you with all of our heart and soul and mind. Enable us to live to our fellow Man according to your word, loving our neighbor as ourselves. Lord deliver us from bearing any anger or resentment in our heart from everything that is ungenerous or unrighteous or unkind to save us. And let the law of love be written on the fleshly tablets of our renewed heart. And Lord help us to master our tongues. For If that be bridled, the whole body is manageable. Keep us, God, when we're in the company and equally preserve us when we are in secret. Help us to keep the door of our lips and grant that when that door is opened, that they may not come out of it bitter and sweet. May we not be both blessing and cursing, but may we speak that which is good to edification. And may our speech always be seasoned with salt. And, Fathers, I pray for us this morning concerning sin. I pray for our leaders in Washington, D.C., and in Montgomery, and in our local municipalities. We pray, Father, that they, too, turn from their sins that they may repent of their evil ways, their evil uh, legislations and legislative proposals, their evil policies that are making life exceedingly difficult here in our land. We pray, Father, that you may turn the hearts of our leaders to you in this hour of grace. We pray, Father, that You give them a new heart, a new nature. That is the only way man will change. It is not through just doing the right thing because they cannot do the right thing if their hearts are not right with you. And Father, we also pray for the church universal. We pray for our brothers here in our area, like-minded men. We pray for our brothers and sisters at Anderson Bible and Grace fellowship and redeemer and christian fellowship and iron city uh, baptist and mountain view and other like-minded brothers that you send the preaching of the pure gospel through those churches and lord we ask you to send it throughout the world and we ask you father to silence the voices of those that are spreading false doctrines the doctrines of demons who are spreading infidelity to your word and Lord may the day come when every pulpit shall resound with the pure gospel of Jesus Christ and his people shall again return their allegiance to the faith that was once delivered to the saints never to swerve again and father lastly as I prepare to preach this morning we pray for those who are unconverted Will give us to feel great sorrow and heaviness of heart for those who as yet are far from you. Lord, bring them in. Awaken the careless and the frivolous, that there may be such here this morning, or such who will hear this sermon, or such who are watching it, who have never given any solemn consideration to the matters of their soul. May they be awakened and aroused today. And while we set forth the way of salvation by grace, May they feel, rather, their need of it and be willing to accept it. And may the Lord save them this day. Father, hear now the preaching of your word. Fill me with your spirit to preach this text as we begin our new series in the book of Galatians, where we consider defending the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, send your spirit to illuminate this text to us that we're going to read and preach through this morning. May you be pleased with what comes out of my mouth and may only your words proceed out of my mouth. Bless the preaching and hearing of your word this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Some of that prayer was adapted from uh, Charles uh, Spurgeon his book of prayer that I've uh, referenced uh, before. We thank the Lord for Godly men who've come before us that we can learn from. So good morning. We're in the book of Galatians. We've been talking about this book for a few weeks. We're beginning a new sermon series. I think uh, uh, 14 sermons out of the book of Galatians. We're excited about getting into this book. We spent the last few months in the parables of Christ and Matthew's gospel. And before that, we went through Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. So we're going to spend uh, prayerfully the next year in uh, Paul's uh, four letters to uh, the church, beginning with Galatians, then Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. That is the uh, plan. Uh, First up is the book of Galatians. We're reading here from the first chapter, verses one Through five. And this is the word of the Lord. It says Paul an apostle. Not from men. Nor through man. But through Jesus Christ. And God the father. Who raised him from the dead. And all the brethren who are with me. To the churches. Of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God, the father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And amen to the reading of the word. Just by introduction, I want to uh, I think I have a map on the next slide up here that shows uh, I think Galatia is in the green part. Uh, You have Galatia, Asia. I think that's Bithynia, Cappadocia. Uh, Those ancient lands now make up modern day Turkey uh, which is north of the Arabian Peninsula uh, just above uh, Saudi uh, Arabia. And so Galatia is a uh, was a region in uh, Old Testament, New Testament times, and this is the church which Paul uh, wrote to. Now, why did Paul write a letter to uh, Galatia? In Paul's letters, all of them, uh, well, most of them, uh, address uh, issues that was going that were going on in those uh, churches. Almost every a book of his has a theme Now a book like 1st and 2nd Corinthians has several uh, questions that Paul uh, answered uh, for those Christians. But Galatia, Galatians rather, uh, Paul is addressing a pressing issue. And what was happening in the Galatian church was that you had Jews. They were called Judaizers. Uh, they were basically teaching the Gentiles that uh, salvation in Christ uh, by grace through faith was not enough, but also teaching that they had to be circumcised and that they had to observe the law. So they were basically adding to salvation. They were adding to um, the proof of salvation or the means of salvation that they had to submit to all the Mosaic law before they could become Christians They were already Christians, but the Judaizers came along and said, no, that's not enough. It's not enough to just have faith. You have to obey the Mosaic law. You're asking non-Jews to do that. So that is uh, what they were doing. And and Paul uh, was very upset by this because this is is heresy adding to the gospel. So Paul, uh, in one of his uh, missionary journeys, Uh, which is uh, chronicled in uh, Acts, I think, 13 through 15 is where he had his first missionary uh, journey. He traveled in the region of the churches of Galatia uh, during this time, so he had a chance to see uh, what was going on uh, in those churches. And Paul was appalled by that because he himself was a Jew. And Paul, as a Jew, with the ministry to the Gentiles, knew that this would be, a hindrance to those people by adding to what uh, what was required to be saved. And the thing about this epistle is that it is the only one of Paul's letters that does not have a commendation for its readers. The only one. And you see that in the beginning. If you look at the beginning of this letter and the rest of his letters, he gives commendations to those churches. But he doesn't do it to this one. And he gets right down to the nitty-gritty. He gets right down to the problem. He gets right down to, as we say in the military, brass tacks. And we'll see that uh, next week. So, after he received notification of the influence of the Judaizers, Paul wrote a letter to them. Because, again, we have to be reminded that they were telling these Gentiles that they must submit to Jewish Regulations, particularly circumcision in order to be a true Christian or in order to be rightly uh, related to God. This was an addition to the gospel. This is what we would call legalism in our day. You know, those who've been here long enough know that I've talked about, talked about that as far as the type of uh, religious system that my family was in. It was in a uh, legalistic uh, system. A lot of, Uh, one is Pentecostal uh, type churches you know Jesus only churches Uh, that's what we came out of they were very legalistic they added uh, requirements uh, to prove that you were saved you know we talked about that uh, before the women had to wear dresses and not cut their hair and couldn't wear uh, you know makeup Um, you know couldn't wear jewelry other than a uh, wedding ring uh, the, the more you went to church, the holier you were. You know, one church we went to, we had like seven different church services a week. You know, we were always in church because that's what kept you holy. That's legalism. Are you adding to? And that is a, a heresy. And a lot of uh, oneness churches are like that. Oneness, Pentecostal, holiness, Jesus-only churches are uh, like that where they, uh, they add requirements And they actually make it a burden for people to be saved. They become a hindrance to them, rather. And then they add the burden once they are in Christ. And so that's what we see here uh, taking place. The gospel itself is pure on its own, as we're going to see. And so Paul writes his letter to address this crisis. So the big idea this morning of our sermon is that because the gospel originates with God and centers itself in the substitutionary sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. We cling to it and give God glory. That is our big idea that we're going to unpack this morning. So before we get into our principles, I have some uh, introductory matters to uh, look at. And uh, we're going to look at verses one and two and uh, look at some introductory things here. So first of Paul, Paul addresses himself As an apostle, and some Bibles have uh, parenthetically here, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So first thing Paul does is he gives his bona fides, or he gives his bona fide credentials, that he is an apostle. And not just one apostle that, Uh, A self proclaimed apostle, like these so called apostles do in our day. He was given the legitimacy of his authorship because uh, of the detractors uh, that tried to delegitimize his apostleship, to say that he wasn't an apostle because he wasn't one of the twelve. So in verse 1, Paul asserts and defends his apostleship. He is an apostle the Greek for that is apostolos and is not on the basis of human origin or agency his apostolic authority has its source and agency in Jesus Christ and God the father who raised him from the dead you can't get more authentic than that and more legitimate than that so Paul was saying that his call was mediated not through man but through God, the son and God, the father. Who raised Christ from the dead. You can't get more legitimate than that. Paul was set aside by God to communicate the saving grace of the gospel. He was not a self-proclaimed apostle. If you think about in our day, especially we have so-called apostles in our area. Men who have called themselves to be apostles. They're self-proclaimed. They're self-glorifying. I remember uh, before we uh, planted uh, our church back in 2010, our family was attending a, a church uh, up in the Linlock area. At that time, it was over on 15th or 14th Street. And the uh, I'll never forget the pastor at that church um, said the following words, and I knew it was time for us to go after this. He said, I must go up so that the men under me can go up. And I told my wife, I remember these very words. I said, Guess what? After a while, he's going to be calling himself an apostle. And lo and behold, About a year or so later, he goes by the title apostle. He was saying he has to go up to an apostle so that the men under him can go up under him. As if there's some type of hierarchical uh, structure. But that was not a call from God. That was a call from man. Because man is self-seeking. Man is sinful. Man craves to be worshipped. In our sinful state, we want to be worshipped. We want to be glorified. And Paul was showing that he was not one of these type of men. His legitimacy was because he was called of God. His call was not in isolation. His call was actually affirmed. By all the brethren who are with him, as he says here in verse two, and all the brethren who are with me. The fact that he was called by God is important because man's calling can often be in violation of God's standard for his preachers. If you take this to the wider cultural context. You have some churches that have female pastors. First 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 clearly states that the, that the calling of an elder must be a man. But you have some women going around and say, I'm called by God to be a pastor. But God would never call you to an office that is in violation of his standard, in violation of his word. You think about the false preachers in apostate church denominations, how they've ordained all sorts of people to lead their, quote, churches. These people are called by man. They're not called by God. Because God has a clear standard in his word. It's there. Read it. 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1. God gives a clear standard for who should be leading his church but you have apostate churches you have false preachers those who are who who want power and who want to exercise authority over people who call themselves or get some type of uh, shyster crooked preacher to anoint them to ministry God would never violate his word God is true to his word. God is faithful to his word. God cannot sin. And God doesn't sanction sin. It is a sin for a woman to pastor a church. It is a sin for someone who is homosexual to pastor a church. It is someone who claims to be the opposite gender to pastor a church. But yet you have denominations, apostate. You have apostate churches. You have false preachers. You have tens of thousands of churches. Probably hundreds of thousands of churches in our land that are led by people who were not called by God. But they were called by man. And the fruit of their work is proof. The fruit of Paul's call by God and Christ will prove to be more fruitful than that of his detractors. God will not call someone into self-promotion. God will not call someone into self-glory or self-worship. He will not call someone who will lead a church and themselves into apostasy. He will not call those kind of people. So what were Paul's detractors charging him with? They were charging him with not being a true apostle because he was not like them. It reminds me of uh, when you read the book of Acts, in Acts, the 10th chapter, when uh, God sent Peter to Cornelius and his family. You know, Cornelius Gentile, Paul, I'm sorry, Peter Jew Jewish and Peter had this vision and now this you know he, he said that he should not eat anything unclean and God told him not to call anything uncommon and God sent him to Cornelius God gave Cornelius the same uh, dream and so Cornelius knew when Peter was coming and when Peter came to him Peter said that he learned that God is not a respecter of persons these Judaizers were Showing partiality. The sin of partiality. They were more partial to. Their Jewish faith. Than to the faith of these Gentiles. They were so partial. That they wanted these Gentiles. To become Jews. And therefore causing a hindrance to them. So Paul legitimizes his authorship. And his apostleship. And then afterwards. We see his audience in the second part of verse two. Who does Paul address? The churches of Galatia. Why is this important? Paul's call was to the church of God. It was to the edification of the saints. And we talk about this all the time in in Bible study as I, I, I've done before when we're looking at the letters, uh, Paul especially. Uh, who the audience is? Who is Paul writing to? He's writing to the church. So as you read the whole book, you know he's addressing the church. Now the church in the first century didn't always meet in a centralized location. Most of them met in homes. Okay, they didn't have big First Baptist churches and First Methodist churches and different places like that to meet those churches were scattered out throughout those regions so the letters were transported by courier to the different churches so we see the audience of paul's letter is the churches in galatia and the audience of his letter sets the context for what follows in this letter amen so let's get to our principles here uh, this morning our principles will be in verses 3 uh, through five, we have four of them this morning. Our sermon topic is Paul gives glory to God. He gives glory to God for four things. One is the benefits of the gospel. Two, the source of the benefits. Three, the foundation of the benefits. And four, the purpose of the gospel. So he begins by saying grace to you and peace to from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I verse 3, Paul declares the benefits of the gospel. What are those benefits? Grace and peace from God, our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you, grace to the church, grace to the saints, and peace from God. These two terms, grace and peace, summarize great provisions. Grace is God's attribute of benevolence and kindness. God's blessing of goodwill by which he shows favor to some sinners who deserve uh, damnation, who deserve to be condemned and he delivers them from their sins. Now I want to say something about grace right quick. You have uh, the reformers talked about, a common grace and special grace, because we hear many people use the word grace, especially unbelievers. Unbelievers use the word grace, but I think that as believers we need to make sure that we define what grace means. First, you have common grace. Common grace is God's general uh, benevolence or blessings toward his creation. You know, God reigns on the just as well as the unjust. He allows unbelievers to prosper. Some of the richest, well, probably all the richest people in the world are unbelievers. The atheists, they're secularists, but God through his common grace blesses them to gain wealth, to live a long life, to be successful in life, to have long marriages, good children. God does bless the unjust. That's God's common grace. God's common, his general benevolence toward his grace. Why? Because he is a benevolent God. Which can lead people to say, I must be doing something right. That's what people believe. I remember one time we did uh, ministry at the laundromat up here, uh, in where the Social Security building is, and we were, you know, paying for people uh, to, you know, come there with quarters, paying people to, you know, wash and dry their clothes. And I'll never forget this lady. Uh, you know, I, I went to pay for her, put the quarters in the dryer and everything, and she said, "I must have done something right this week for God to bless me like this." That's the way a lot of people think. And unfortunately, some Christians think that way. Man, I must have done something good for God to. You know, no, that's God's common grace towards us, His common goodness. And then you have special grace. Special grace is the grace of God that regenerates, that justifies, that adopts, that sanctifies. It is the grace of God that leads to salvation and that grace is reserved for his people it flows from God's gracious character his graciousness in saving men from their sins that special grace is only reserved for the elect so when people say grace I thank God for his grace Most of them are talking about his common grace. But believers, we thank God for his special grace in saving us, in justifying us, in adopting us into his family. Furthermore, the grace of God is the strength and the nurture that God gives to us so that we can grow in grace. So that we become stronger in our faith. So Paul is reminding his believers about this grace. He says grace to you. That is the heart of the gospel. God gives this grace to his people. So that we can live well the Christian life. Live to his glory and then live with him in eternity. That is what this grace does. It is not grace just for grace's sake. This grace does something in the life of a believer. This grace enables us to live a godly life. This grace perseveres us in our faith. And this grace enables us to live with him in all of eternity. And also what comes with grace is the declaration of peace. So Paul says grace and peace. And this peace is an objective peace. It is not subjective. It is not the absence of conflict. This peace comes from the fact that we as Christians were once enemies of God. Paul said this in Ephesians 2 that we were once dead In our trespasses and sins, we were alienated from God. We once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath just as the others that is Ephesians 2 1 through 3 so this peace is objective it comes from the fact that we were once enemies and God looked upon us with a just wrath but now God's wrath is what it is turned away And he is reconciled to us. This is the objective act of being reconciled to God. It is the reconciliation that brings peace. Reconciliation always brings peace. When those two sides come together and reconcile, there is peace. And it is Christ who reconciled us to God. And Paul talked about the ministry of reconciliation in 2nd Corinthians 5. So he says grace and peace. These two words summarize the benefits of the gospel. And this is a declaration. This is not a wish. Paul makes a declaration. You can have good wishes for people. You can wish people well in different endeavors. We pray that God will bless us. But Paul here is not talking about good wishes of grace and peace. No, he is making a declaration. It is pronouncing grace and peace to you. God is communicating this grace to his people. Which leads to the source. Who is the source of these benefits? God. He says grace and peace to you from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. So this grace and peace that we're talking about has a source. God is the true source of true grace and peace. He is the true source. He is the surety of this declaration. It is from God. So Paul makes this connection under one preposition from. And it's from the first and second persons of the Trinity. And he joins those names together to show the the, the certainty, the surety of this declaration. It comes from God. And God is reconciled to us as father. Father. And he is reconciled to us as father through the mediatorial work of Christ. Christ is our mediator. It is from God through Christ. And what Paul does here, and when I was studying this, I I didn't think about this until I really thought about it. He uses three names of our Savior. Lord Jesus Christ. That's not his first, middle, and last name, by the way. Okay, But when I was thinking about this, I said, you know, names mean something. Especially in Scripture. The names of Christ mean something. The, the titles of Christ mean something. It's just not Lord just for the sake of Lord. Lord means something. Jesus means something. Christ means something. So Paul used these three names of Christ. So let's look at them in reverse order. These names teach the sufficiency of his work. The title Christ teaches that our Savior was anointed by God as Messiah. He was anointed as our prophet, priest, and king. And while Christ was on earth, he exercised these offices. And now in heaven, he is exercising them on our behalf. This recalls to my mind the uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism. Questions 23 through 26 say the following. Question 23 asks What offices does Christ execute as our Redeemer? Christ as our Redeemer executes the office of a prophet of a priest and of a king both in his state of humiliation when he came down to earth and his exaltation 24 asks how does Christ execute the office of a prophet Christ executes the office of a prophet in revealing to us by his word and spirit the will of God for our salvation 25 how does Christ execute the office of a priest Christ executes the office of a priest in his once offering up of himself as a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God and in making continual intercession for us. This is what the priest did in the Old Testament sacrificial system. 26, how does Christ execute the office of a king? He subdues us to himself in ruling and defending us and in restraining and conquering all his enemies. So, when we think about the name Christ, we think about him being anointed by God as our prophet, our priest, and our king, and those roles continue as he is in heaven at the right hand of the Father. And then you have the personal name, Jesus, means that he is the God man, he is fully God. And fully man. He is the one who alone can save us. Matthew 1 and 21. You shall call his name Jesus. For he shall save his people from their sins. Now the title Lord establishes him as Jehovah God. Who is now exalted in heaven. And before whom every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is what? Lord to the glory of the Father. That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So those three names give the source of our benefits. Next we get to the foundation of the benefits. So Paul says, grace is to you in peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for our sins. So, the foundation of those benefits is the substitutionary atonement of Christ. That is the foundation. Christ gave Himself for our sins that He may deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Our salvation was purchased for us by Christ. He gave Himself. Paul here is teaching the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. And believe it or not, you have many denominations that teach against this doctrine that Christ did not die as our substitute. But Paul reminds his readers that the Lord. Jesus Christ became their substitute. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians to the Corinthians 5 and 21 that God made him Christ who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. As high priest, he offered his perfect life as the propitiative. Propitiatory rather, sacrifice. We talked about propitiation before. Propitiation means to appease or to satisfy. It was the appeasement or satisfaction of God's wrath. The universal condemnation of mankind is articulated in uh, Romans 1. Paul talks about how all mankind is condemned. Paul says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So the wrath of God is on all who are unbelievers. Only one person could appease God's wrath. And it's not us. As we read in the catechism this morning and last week, there's only one redeemer. There's only one who could appease God's wrath, and that was the Lord Jesus Christ. That is why he is the only one who could be our substitute. Because he is the only one who could appease the wrath of God. And there are several scriptures that allude to Christ's as the propitiation for our sins Hebrews 2 and 17 the writer says therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people Romans 3 24 and 25 for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood First John 2 and 2 says that he is the propitiation for our sins he was the pure and spotless son of God who bore the wrath of God in place of his people he stood between the wrath of God and us he bore the wrath of God on the cross he paid the penalty on the cross by suffering in his body the eternal punishment that was due to us sinners God punished his son so that he could justly look with favor on those who place their faith in him. He punished his own son to do that. Why aren't believers condemned? Because Christ was condemned for us. That's why Paul can say in Romans 8 and 1, "There's there's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. He was condemned for us. He was condemned in our place. And this is the foundation of the gospel benefits. Now, what was the purpose of the sacrifice? It wasn't just to die in our place. The purpose was that he might deliver us from this present evil age. The Bible speaks of two ages. You have the present age and then you have the age to come. The present age stretched from the fall of man uh, to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the age to come is when uh, God's people shall live with him in a glorified eternal state. That is the age to come. We can all agree that this present age we live in is an evil age. Amen. Paul says that he might deliver us from this present evil age. We can all agree. If you're old like me and still watch the news, you can see it. If you look on social media, you can see how evil our age is. We've been talking about it in our worldview. Bible study last few months, how evil our age is. We live in a very evil age. Very evil, exceedingly evil. Now, some Bible translations uh, translate the word age as world. Now, when we think about world, we have to think in terms of the world system, not this physical world. So when the Bible speaks of world in this context. It's speaking of the immoral world system, the immoral and ungodly ideologies, philosophies and religions of this world system. That's what we think about when we think about the age in which we live. You have ungodly, immoral ideologies, philosophies, systems, and religions and others. The physical created world is not evil because rocks and trees and food and drink in and of themselves uh, are not evil. So when it's talking about world, it's talking about the The system of the world. The world system is evil because it is under the dominion of Satan. So this age is under the prince of darkness and we are in it. And we have to contend with the bondage of sins and the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the and the pride of life that is indulging everyone in this world. But Christ, by his perfect sacrifice, guess what he did? He delivered his people from this evil age. He delivered us from the guilt and the curse of sin and from the dominion of sin. Just as I I prayed earlier, he delivered us from the dominion of sin. Sin shall have no rule over us. It doesn't mean that we're not going to struggle with the sin that still resides in us sin is in us but it's not on us we're clothed with the righteousness of Christ but until the Lord calls us home we're going to struggle with sin now it's a struggle we don't live in sin those who live in sin are not believers those just say I give up I'm just going to just do it I just don't care you're not a Christian you can't live in sin actively live in sin Now, we struggle against it. All of us who are believers, we struggle with our sin nature. That's why we have to confess our sins. That's why we have to continuously repent. Martin Luther said in 95 Theses, all of a believer's life is that of repentance. We're constantly turning away from sin. But Christ has ultimately delivered us from sin. He saved us. He rescued us. We're not under the sway of the evil one. First John 5 and 19, John says, We are of God, and the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. But we're not just saved from something, we're saved to something. Salvation is not just a get out of get out of hell free card. He didn't just save us to rescue us from hell, but also to conform us to the image of Christ. To live, godly in this present world. He came to rescue us from the bondage of sin. Now, our deliverance is complete, but it is not fully realized in his life. And it's not going to be. We all have that remnant of sin in us. And that's why we have to work out our salvation with fear. Trembling, we as Christians live in two worlds. We live in the already and the not yet. Our citizenship is in heaven, but we're not there yet. Our inheritance is already there. We have eternal life, but we want to inherit it until we go to be with the Lord. But the great thing about it is that our citizenship is there and we can never lose it. We can never lose it. We can never lose that inheritance that we have. That is the great thing about it. No one can take it from us. But in the midst of this present age, we have to deal with that reality. But what gives us hope that this is not it? This world is not it. That we have a place that is already prepared for us, that was prepared for us in eternity past. Lord, we pray for deliverance from this present age. Sometimes I just say, come, Lord, quickly when I see things in the news. I just say, Lord, come quickly, like come now. Sometimes when I'm dealing with my own sin, I'm like, Lord, please take me home now. I'm tired of of dealing with it. Because the greatest thing, John MacArthur said this, the greatest thing about heaven is there will be no sin. Sin has messed everything up, hasn't it? It's corrupted, not just man, but it's corrupted nature also. But we know that one day that deliverance will be in full. And why did God do this? Paul said in the end of verse four, according to the will of God, our father all of this was according to God's will you got many people that view God as a stern and God that's full of wrath and and Christ is as uh, gracious and forgiving but God eternally planned our salvation through Jesus Christ if he was full of wrath guess what he would have never sent his son to be our substitute. You tell those people, say, Oh, the that, that, that God you serve is a God of wrath. Uh, obviously, they haven't read the Bible, they just repeat what everyone else says. They don't read the Bible. God was so loving that he gave his only begotten son. And our last principle Paul gives glory to God for the purpose of the gospel. Verse 5. To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul concludes the salutation by pointing to the purpose of the gospel. The purpose of the gospel is to bring glory to God. That is the purpose of the gospel. Paul, if you look at all his letters, he, he can't write about salvation without giving glory to God. I think about Romans uh, Eleven, the doxology where he gave glory to God. He was just so overwhelmed by what the Lord had inspired him to write that he broke out into a doxology, giving praise to God. He said in uh, Ephesians 1 and 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul states the important truth that it was God's purpose from all eternity to save a people by sovereign grace that he might be glorified. And the Galatians need to be reminded of this truth that it was about God's glory, not the glory of the Judaizers. Because the Judaizers promoted self congratulation I've done something to contribute to my salvation. I've been circumcised. I kept the law. I'm worthy of salvation because I grew up in a Christian home. I went to church as a kid. I'm a worthy candidate of salvation. I, I was good. I never got in trouble. My parents never had to spank me. I never squandered my allowance. I never got a speeding ticket. Everybody thinks I'm a good person. I'm a candidate to be saved. Why wouldn't God save someone as good as me? That's what people think in their hearts sometimes. That's why you have very wealthy people who like doing charitable goods and and works of altruism where they're doing goodwill towards people because they think somehow uh, surely a God, uh, 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 you know, surely God can't turn away a person like me. Look at all the money I gave. Look at how many poor people I fed uh, through Thanksgiving. Look at how many turkeys I gave away. Look at how many gifts I gave away to the poor at Christmas. self-congratulatory people who think they've contributed anything to their salvation or that they can. Paul reminded them that it is all about God. Friends, the moment that we add an aspect of works to our acceptance with God, whether ceremonial or otherwise, whether it's walking in aisle, Or answering an invitation or being baptized, we introduce the element of self congratulation. When we think that that's what did it. And such boasting is evil. We just read that in our um, opening scripture reading this morning from Philippians 3. Paul says, If anyone has an opportunity to boast, I do. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, circumcised on the eighth day. But Paul was reminding the Galatians that they have no room to boast. The ultimate purpose of the gospel is that saved sinners should give all glory and honor to the triune God God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The Westminster. Confession teaches that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We do that even in the context of salvation. If God saved us, guess what? Glory to God for saving us. Not glory to ourselves. It always revolves around God. And that is the purpose of the gospel. Amen couple of things points of application here we give glory to God and what he has called us to do in his church God has called all just he called Paul as an apostle every believer has been called by God has been gifted by God to serve in his church and whatever he has gifted us to do guess what we give glory to him that I'm sorry but slowfulness is not a gift of God (laughs) okay it's not and uh, just being a good talker well maybe being a good talker I don't know but you can be a good talker and not be good at talking I heard a, a radio host say one time people think it's easy to get on the radio and talk for four hours he's right it's not you can run out things to talk about you're not very engaging your voice may be annoying just all those different things you know some people have a voice for radio they have a very soothing voice that's a that's a gift but talking just for talking sake is not one <laughs> but don't be deterred we're all called to proclaim and defend the true gospel you don't have to have any uh you want to know a little bit something but you don't have to have any uh THD behind your name to do that. That's a doctor of theology, by the way. And lastly, just give, benef- give glory to God for the benefits, the source, foundation, and purpose of the gospel that we talked about today. All, all of it is glory to God. We give glory to God for the benefits, the grace and peace that God bestows on all of us as believers. And the source is God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ and the foundation is the substitutionary death of Christ and the purpose is the glory of God Amen. let us pray Father thank you for your word this morning thank you Lord for the glorious gospel thank you for being so gracious to us and saving us And in that salvation, we have peace with you through the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, help us all as believers to glorify you in the calling with which you have called us. All of us are called to work and serve in your church. We may not be be called to be apostles as Paul uh, was, but we're all called by you when you save us help us to do all that to your glory including sharing the gospel and Lord help us to always remember that all is to be done to your glory and all is for your glory including our salvation may we never boast in our salvation and Lord I pray for unbelievers that hear this message that you may use it to convince them Of their sinful state. Convince them of their. Hopelessness. And convict them. Of their sins. And may that conviction lead. To repentance and salvation. Lord use this message to edify. Your church. And to bring sinners. To repentance. In Christ's name. Amen.